0: Log Talk Radio. I have an emergency. What is your location? your soul. Indeed, there is a war for our souls in every facet, every area, at every level, in every dimension that you can imagine. But welcome to the victory as well. Thank you, Jesus, for this very beautiful day that you've given us, that you are the Lord God of creation, and all things uh, consist and are held together and held in place by you. We thank you that your will be done, O God, on earth in and through us. And that you will deliver us from the evil one, that you'll declare goodness and mercy over your people, that you'll teach us to walk in your commandments, teach us to walk in victory. I thank you, Jesus. You did the will of your father. You died on the cross. You purchased our salvation. You bought and paid for it, paid in full with your blood. And I thank you, Jesus, for giving us also the power uh, to bind, to loosen, to forgive, the power over darkness. You said, I give you power over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. So, Father, I thank you for teaching us to present our case, to plead our cause, to stand against the lies of the darkness through your your work. I thank you also for the promise, Lord God, that you've given us, that your word, that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that no word said, no deed done, no action taken by the evil one, which can be many, will be able to bring forth any shame, trouble, or reproach against your people and will not prosper. I thank you, Lord God, for protecting us individually, specifically, in every aspect of our lives, our health and safety, our traveling, our vehicles, our finances, our property, the work of our hands, our calling, and our relationships, that the enemy cannot get in to bite, divide, tear, strip, pervert, twist, diminish, destroy our relationships with each other, with ourselves, and with you, Lord God, but that you will prevail in every way as we have been tested. We are your workmanship tested, and, and true, truly and indeed we have been tested. So now come as our faithful witness and teach us. This day, in your precious name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, I have a very interesting topic, but I think it's going to be an extended topic because I found out as I delved into this idea of the devil's favorite Bible verses or Satan's favorite scriptures, that he has a lot of them. He has more than I thought. As a matter of fact, the devil himself quotes the Bible to Jesus nonetheless. As we saw in the temptation in the wilderness, we'll kind of get to that part. But I think today, what I'm going to do is just start stirring your mind to think about these things and the mysteries and the and the ramifications and the context within which all of our lives are lived that we never really think about. Um, the context of war, defined in the of paramet- the parameters of the uh, uh, paradigm of war, spiritual war, battle for our souls, and and in the in the context of the court of heaven. We've been talking a lot about that lately, and I think unless you really understand the dynamic between Satan and God or God and Satan, nothing else makes sense, and God half the time looks totally insane. So we need to understand this, but let's look at some of the favorite verses, then we're going to go back and take them slowly, individually, and it might take us more than one or two shows to do this. I came up with, just without even scratching my head, these verses. Satan's scriptures that he loves, that he uses against us, against God every day. The soul that sins shall die. You know, he he worked that one in the garden quite well. The favorite one in uh, the New Testament, I think, is in in, uh, Mark, Matthew, where he says, judge not, lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. That's Mark 7, 1 and following. Um, He also loves the verse, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, a blow for a blow. He loves um, the verse, Satan loves the verse, the wages of sin is death, because that then gives him permission to claim death as wages for those who sin. It's the cost, the penalty of practicing sin. Another one of his favorite verses is the one we find in Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Satan is here to make sure that that verse truly comes to pass and is uh, fully effective and operative in as many lives as possible. Um, then there's the scary verse in Hebrews. I'll just kind of go to that for a second. I, many, many, many times people bring up this scripture. I mean, the devil has ways of finding the vulnerable, fragile people who don't know their, their identity in God. They don't know their place in Jesus Christ. They don't know the love of God. And then he has them read in the Bible these terrifying scriptures about hellfire brimstone or something like more subtly in Hebrews Chapter six, where um, six, four through six, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come. That would be a lot of us, right? They fall away it, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. What this would at face value seem to be saying is if you backslide, give up, you sin, go against God after you've heard and learned and been saved, tasted the, uh, the good word of God and turned away or spit it out, that there is henceforth no remedy, um, no way to renew yourself again to the repentance, to uh, having coming into good graces with God. But obviously, that is a perversion of the meaning of the scripture because Satan loves to have people hung up on, well, it's too late now. I'm no, there's no remedy for me, no remedy for me anymore. But what that really is saying is if they fall away or are backslidden or tempted or deceived into falling away um, to renew them again, to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves, the son of God and put him to open shame. What he's really saying is there's no other remedy than the cross. There's no other way you can't, you know, it's already been done. It's accepted. You, ex, you know, sanctification is, and, and salvation are two different things. So the remedy is the same, no matter if you backslide and come back to the truth or if you never leave the truth, the remedy is always the death, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you can come back to that anytime you want. But Satan says, no, 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 it's too late for you because you've sinned. And then or he handcuffs you with you've committed the unpardonable sin which there is, you know, absolutely no no turning back on that one. Well, the unpardonable sin is a sin that cannot be forgiven, and the sin that cannot be forgiven, the only sin that cannot be forgiven, basically, is any sin that there, that you've not asked for forgiveness for. Because God is willing to forgive. We know He's forgiven people who have backslid and committed murder and and all those other things, um, adultery. Um, you know, so there's no consistency in, in identify and in interpreting that verse in the strict, perverted way Satan would have you um, see it as a hopeless cause, and there's no hope left for me. So let's go back. Um, there's more. There's tons more, but I'm just going to start with those, and I'm sure we'll add to the list. And if you come up with any, you can email me at mcole at com and we will add your verse to the list, and who knows where it'll end up probably in a great discussion somewhere. All right. So let's look at the first one in Ezekiel uh, 18, where it says the soul that sins shall die. Now we know that in Exodus, and uh, I think it's also in Numbers, we, say the sin, we know the verse that says, the sins of the fathers are visited unto the children to the third and fourth generation uh, of those who hate me and mercy to th- countless thousands of those who love me. So we see that that mercy and forgiveness um, and judgment, the generational sins, if you will, are coming down the bloodline, come almost like as an automatic default into the life of the person. And we've talked about that before, about basically the iniquities are marked on the DNA highlighted by the devil. He's got permission slips in his pocket from the generations that have gone before that have opened the doors left the sins unconfessed and unforgiven and completely viable to be passed down into the next generation with, with a simple little agreement, uh, a lie a deception that he promotes among the people who are in, in unsuspecting the children. But all of that to say this, that is the default. God says the sins of the fathers are visited onto the children to the third and fourth generation. He doesn't say he wants that. He says that's what happens. He says that's what happens because you don't understand it all, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, people, that allow the devil to call in the chips, that when he plays the game, he has the wages of sin is death. You know, He's got a lot of stuff he can work with to make his case and to claim his prizes. So God is saying, basically, Be aware, the sins of the fathers are visited onto the children to the third and fourth generation. Let's read that in Exodus chapter 20, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It wasn't hidden anywhere. God put it right smack dab in the middle of where you couldn't miss it. And he says in in chapter 20 of Exodus, um, well, I'll I'll read starting with verse 1. And the Lord God God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. That should be pretty clear. One God, only one God, no other gods, don't worship any other gods. One God, that's it. I am one. I am God, he says. Second, fourth verse, you shall not make for yourselves any carved images or any likenesses of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is underneath, uh, in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here we go. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers unto the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we'll go on with the commandments as you will. But he says here, visiting, visiting, they come to visit, not to stay. They're not permanent members. They're not members of the household. They're visitors. Um, These demons come to visit the iniquities. Familiar spirits come to visit or bring down the iniquity of the fathers. Onto the children, to the third and fourth generation, and as you've noticed, if you have paid any attention at all, that the generational iniquities and problems in your life are they're they're predictable. It's they're because they come in the form of a pattern. I call them the demonic life patterns that Satan has set up in our lives. Some people have, you know, a consistent pattern of addictions, or a consistent pattern of accidents, or a consistent pattern of. Uh, feuding in their relationships or bitterness or broken marriages or whatever it is or maybe several of those patterns are in your bloodline but um the 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 lord wants us to know that this working of the enemy is because he has a claim he's he's if we cross the line and transgress he has a claim so God is saying keep my commandments and live we'll go we'll go on with that so In Ezekiel, he says, in verse 18, chapter 18, he says, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, okay, what do you mean when you say this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does that mean? Well, that means if the fathers are crabby and their lives are full of sin, they're provoked, they're not happy, they're sour, that their children's teeth are going to feel gritty and grindy and they're going to be. You know how it is when you your teeth are set on edge, you're upset, you're anxious, you're angry, you're biting your tongue, you don't want to say, because the fathers are provoking their children by the things that they are participating in that become now the children's bread or the children's problem. So then in verse three he says, As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. In other words, this doesn't have to be the everyday default on everybody's lives. Just because you come from a a bad, dysfunctional family doesn't mean you have to stay dysfunctional or in a bad, dysfunctional family. Does that make sense? What he says is, um, behold, he says, as I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of his son, is mine. Then he says, the soul that sins shall die. Now, here is the Recording of that powerful tool that Satan uses against us, the soul that sins shall die. Satan went to God in the garden, and I'm sure he said, here's what you said, this is your word, quoting it back to you, God. You said, the soul that sins shall die. Well, obviously you say, well, that verse wasn't even written yet at that point in the garden, because this is Ezekiel, and that was Eden. And that is true, but the word of God, the eternal scriptures of God, I am sure we're already in place in the government system, the governmental system of heaven, and this was the truth: the soul that sinned will die. Why is that? That's not fair. I mean, everybody's going to sin, and Satan knew that, so he took the that verse, that that uh, that scripture, that word of God, very literally, and presented it back to God and said, "Not even Adam, you got to kill him. They need to die." You said the soul that sins shall die. And so what really happened was literally God took it more literally and he said, okay, the soul that that sins shall die. So their souls at that point, their mind, will, and emotions that were um, able to navigate them through the garden and and make good choices and follow God and learn and hear from God and be encouraged by him and uh, obtain wisdom through their souls, their minds, their beautiful, beautiful minds that were now darkened and trillions and trillions of little brain cells were shut down. Um, the soul began to the, become dim and ultimately, eventually, the soul departed from their bodies. When Adam was 930 years old, his soul departed from his body and he died. So once the soul departs from the body, you're dead. But the death wasn't an instant, immediate death, which God didn't say it had to be. That, that verse doesn't say you instantly die. So the soul that sins shall die, so Satan was using that to uh, petition for the death penalty for Adam and Eve in the court of heaven. And God knew that if he separated their soul and body immediately, they would collapse their corpses. They become corpses, and that would be the end of the story. So God provided another way. He provided in that, in mo- in that intense moment the promise the promise of the head crusher coming, and he also promised that he would use the seed of the woman, the DNA of the woman. He didn't use the term DNA, but he says, I will put enmity between your seed, speaking to the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And so for that to happen, she had to live. She had to give birth. And it's very interesting that her first son, Cain, was claimed by the evil one. I don't know if he went to hell and not going to make that <laughs> judgment call. But it's interesting. And the and the second son, the beautiful son, the one who offered the gifts, um, the, la- the Lamb of God, was killed. So now we're down to nothing again. You know, it's like a big chess match. You know, Satan says, I get one. If you get one, I get one. <laughs> He's just like such a jerk. Anyway, so he had a player on the board and he killed God's player on the board. <laughs> You know, but God already knew that was going to happen. So God brought forth Seth out of Adam and Eve, and he became the one through which the bloodline began to flow, which we see in the genealogies of Jesus going all the way back to Seth, to Adam. Um, so the, the war is on. So the accuser is taking the word of God, the very words of God, to go back and throw it in God's face, his own word, to petition Yeah, like I said, for the death penalty. For those, he he was, he was able to deceive into sinning. So it's basically the fisherman gets to keep what he catches and cook it if he wants to. you know. And Satan is a fisherman. He's a fisher. He's, he's fishing. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Well, Satan is a fisher of men, the souls of men. He is looking to catch them on his hooks, his bait, his trap, um, his fish wheels of hell, if you will, to... Cook them in his pan and destroy them forever. Eat them, devour them, and through deception. Of course, it all begins with not the choice the fisher the fish makes, but the deception of the fishermen. So when you are feeling condemned because you made a bad choice and people are reminding you it was your choice, just say you know what, like Eve, she went to God and said, "I was deceived, I'm I I was tricked." You know what? What's so hard about that, people? You know, I just that is the biggest stumbling block of pride i've ever seen that woman was brave she went to god and she said you know what i got tricked i didn't know it all after all guess what we think we know it all and we we use the bible and the bible's been used against us by the devil and we think we've been taught by the holy spirit the holy scriptures of god and yet if you look at the fruit of what's going on in your life you'll you'll know for sure who you've been taught by bitterness it's legalism it's perfection it's pointing the finger, it's backbiting, it's gossip. You have not been taught the Holy Scriptures by the Holy Spirit. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures by the angel of light, and the fruit stinks. It's rotten. Just, but, get your act together enough to say, you know what, I've been tricked. That is that big stumbling block of pride. I can't admit that I am wrong. I can't admit that I've been deceived. Eve had no problem in humbling herself, and that's where she saved humanity. Adam didn't do much to save humanity at all. He was trying to save his own neck. Sorry, guys. It's the woman you gave me. You gave me. God, it is your fault. She was flawed and defective. Well, Adam, where were you when she was being tempted by the devil? You were the one who's supposed to be protecting her and watching over her. Where were you? Taking a nap somewhere, probably. Who knows? I don't know what he's doing. It doesn't matter. But Eve is the one who saved us, and I'm not making male-female distinctions here and saying, oh, yay. I'm just saying, good, she's the one who made the first wrong choice. She's the one who made the first right choice. To go back say, you know, there are many believers out there. I'm going to tell you what, you're going to need to be converted. You're going to need to stop thinking you got it all together, and you're right, and everybody else is wrong, and your version and translation is the right one, and start looking at what's coming out of your heart, what's coming out of your mouth, what's coming out of your life, And if that is not pleasing to God and it's not under the law of love, the law of faith and the law of truth, then you are walking in the wrong gospel. And I'll tell you another thing. A lot of people you say, pastors say, well, they keep having to come to the altar and get saved over and over again. Well, that ought to show you something. They're not sure they're saved. And I'll tell you why they're not sure they're saved. You know, are we having false conversions? Well, maybe it's because we have a false gospel out there that we're using to get them converted. And they don't know what the true gospel of God requires, Jesus Christ, grace, goodness, peace, you know, justification by faith. And so they're getting a strung up, twisted, perverted, mixed up gospel where you've got one half of it saying you got to be good, got to be good, br- break this law, God's mad at you, you're going to be judged, now you got consequences, you know, et cetera, et cetera, now you got to come back, go back to square one. You've got the law gospel mixed with the grace gospel and they're never sure if they're saved because they're always sinning. Is sin is no indication yes or no that you're saved or not saved. Both sinners and non, I mean saved and unsaved people sin. So lack of sin or absence of sin is no indication necessarily that you're saved because even Moses sinned towards the end of his life. He, he you know struck the rock twice. He got ticked. He got mad. I don't blame him. You know. Aaron, what did Aaron do? He got together with the people building the golden calf. Alright, why didn't God just strike him dead? That was a pretty grave sin if you ask me. Melting the gold together and making a grave graven image for the people to worship. And then he kind of made a lame excuse, the people made me do it to to Moses. God didn't strike him dead. God's not into striking people dead. That's what the devil wants to do, and God's not into bringing confusion and tormenting people's hearts about the goodness of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. So if you've got false conversions and you've got people coming to your altar not sure they're saved, then check out what gospel they were taught. Maybe they weren't taught the gospel of forgiveness, love, peace, mercy, the power of it is finished. You know, a lot of us are preaching a do, 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 and do more and never done gospel, and Jesus said it's finished, it's done. you believe that or don't you? You either do or you don't. And if you're kind of in the middle and sort of done and sort of not done, it's sort of up to me, you know, all he said for us to do is follow him. He didn't even say be good. He was living with those guys for three and a half years and he said, th- there's no way they're going to be good. There's no none good but one. That's God. It's not about being good. You don't get to heaven because you're perfect. Be good or you've earned your way to heaven by being good and be worthy of salvation. You're never worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy of anything. Your kids aren't worthy of anything. You just love them. And that therefore, you provide and give and, 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 and yearn over them for good things. Not because they're wonderful, perfect. And if you're loving your kids because they're perfect and they deserve your love, then you've got your love for them all twisted and backwards also. Now, that little was off the side. I wasn't planning on saying any of that, but that was very important. So you need to understand this thing. This is a big war between God and Satan for the souls of men. And what's happening here is we don't have a stinking clue about what's going on here, most of us. We just think it is what it is and it appears the way it is and what appears to be is. It's not true. We've said this over and over. And if you're starting to get stirred up about this, then I say, Good. It's time to open your mouth and speak up and tell the truth. God is good all the time. Satan is making him look like a jerk all the time. God is not a wimp. God knows what's going on. And we'll go into that as we can here. There's plenty to understand about it. Okay. So here's the deal. God honors his word above his name. Whatever God says will come to pass. Now, if God says the soul that sins shall die, was that a curse? Was that a threat? Was that a admonition or a warning? Which was it? Was it a curse or was it a warning? If your children are getting to the age where they can walk now, they're toddlers, they're moving around, and you say to them, honey, do not stick Anything in the light socket. Your finger, the hairbrush, nothing. Because if you stick your finger in the light socket you could die. You will die. It could electrocute you. Now is that a curse that you hope that they'll stick their finger in there so they can die? Or is that a warning? God spoke that soul that shall die as a warning and as a new hope. As a new hope. Because if you go on in Ezekiel, he says, All those all every soul is mine, the soul that sins Shall die, but but if a man is just and does what is lawful and good and right, and then he goes on to list all that stuff, he shall live. But if he begets a son who is if the just man begets a son who is a robber, a thief, uh, uh, eats a, a, abominations, oppresses the poor, robs and robs and is violent, you know, lifts his up up his eyes to idols. He, if he has done any of these things, these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. It's, his own, it's going to be his own problem. Nobody's responsible for what he did except he himself. He says, however, if he begets a good son, then we go back to whatever you do. He says, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor shall the father bear the guilt of the son. That's the point of this whole thing. Um, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So you can't have a good godly grandpa and hope to get to heaven by that. You have or, a, or you can't have a wicked incestuous grandpa and think your, your chances are shot. You have a right. You have freedom. You have a will. But the thing is, the problem is we don't understand that these, those iniquities have piled up. And this makes if you have a bad, iniquitous abomination serving grandfather, or grandmother, you're going to have a little bit more to work with to, to, re, to, to confess those iniquities and judgments so that you can be in the clear. But that doesn't mean you can't have eternal life. And that doesn't mean you're strapped forever with what you're, the sins of your relatives. Most of us are, stru- are suffering from sins that were committed against us. Against us, not by us, against us. And many of us are suffering from sins that were committed against us before we born. Okay. Put that in your judgmental pipe and smoke it for a minute. Although I don't re- recommend smoking pipes, obviously. All right. So. God honors his word, loves his word, honors his word above his name. But when he's warning us, and then he, he does warn us, he goes into a big lengthy parental guidance talk, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Have you ever had a talk like that with your kids? They're about to leave home. God's a parent. Everything here, if you can't figure it out, if you say, oh, this is too mysterious. This is too crazy. I don't know how to figure this God out. Then look at your own problems with your own kids in your own family. You got the same, they paint you into a corner. They make, put you in places where you have to make tough decisions. You still love them, but now they've done something to totally test your patience, test your wallet, whatever. Now you're in a quandary. What would wisdom say? How do I do this? How do I continue to love them and discipline them at the same time? These are the same kind of problems God's got every day. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're just at the place where they're crossing over. They're getting out of the wilderness now. They're going to go into uh, the promised land. It's the last of the five first books of the Bible. And so he says in 30 to 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 11. um, Now, this is that, you know, leaving home kind of talk. Parent sits the kid down. You know, they're 18 now. They just turned 18. They can drive and pretty soon they can drink and, you know, they can make all their own mistakes themselves. And he says, for this commandment, which I've commanded you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor nor is it far off. It's not hard to figure out. It's, It's straight. It's simple. Listen. It is, not, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. It's not you saying, this thing isn't way out there that some, you know, demigod from heaven is going to have to bring down the word to you. You already know what this is because it's in your heart. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who's going to go over there and get it for us and bring it back that we might hear it and do it. It's nothing so impossible that you have an excuse here. He says, the word is right here. Right here, in front of your face. The word is, is so near to you, it's in your own mouth and in your own heart that you may do it. Now, this is an interesting the thing. The heart is, What the heart is full of, the mouth speaks. If the heart is full of truth and love and promise and hope and goodness, that's what your mouth will speak. But if your, mouth, your heart is full of doubt, if your soul software, which can only think and feel and be uh, frustrated influenced and confused if you're using that then you're going to be you're going to hear your mouth say i i don't know i'm afraid i think i'm not sure doubt fear confusion but if your heart is full of god's goodness you're going to hear your mouth say that's that's god's got it it's good it'll be all right Uh, god's going to take care of it we can do this whatever i can do all things through christ who strengthens me right But the word is very near you in your mouth, in your heart, that you may do it. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Two sides. Life, death, good, evil, in front of you. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go into possess. Okay, so that's pretty clear, you know. If you follow me, obey me, um, love me. And he's saying, I'm not saying obey me because I have to have you obey me because everybody's got to obey me. I'm saying obey me for your own good. And you as a parent would say the same thing. I don't, you know, it's not that you have to obey me and, and, you know, the parental talk kind of goes something like this. Um, Don't do drugs. Don't hang out with bad friends. um, Don't eat junk food don't drink and drive, don't have sex before marriage, you know, whatever, you know, make good choices, blah, blah, blah. Is that, is that of any benefit at all to the child to take that advice? Or is it just going to benefit the parent? Really, seriously, it's going to benefit the child the most. And the the parent is in a place of, of teaching. You have to learn these things. You don't just, I mean. The devil's teaching us all the time, and we're learning bad things all the time. So God wants to use the parents to instruct the children in right things, righteousness, the word of God. How many kids these days leave home coming from Christian homes and don't have a clue, not a stinking clue about who God is, if he's good or bad, what's really going on? Because their parents don't. So you've instructed them in what you've known, which isn't much, because you've been taught basically a mixed gospel yourself. And so these young ones are going out there, and they're absolutely, totally vulnerable, totally unprepared for what they're going to find out they're in that world that's going to grab a hold of their brains and program every element and fiber of their body before they even know that they've been struck down. Now you say, well, that's not very positive. Well, you know what? That's what's happening. And if you see that happening, then it's time to pray, intercede, rise up, Make your petitions and case known before the court of heaven for your own children and grandchildren and say, no, you won't, devil. That's enough. Lord, I bind the powers of destruction that have been sent, the, the, the sites that have put my child or grandchild as a target. I bind and forbid that. I, I present my case before the high court of heaven for mercy and instruction. This is the war, but the war is fought in court. The war. The war. The military war for the souls of men. Really. The spiritual battle is much more a courtroom battle than you might think. Okay, so, okay, so all the devil has to do then is that means to cross the line. Okay, what's the line? Well, what are we talking about here? Well, let's talk about the lines that that law drew in the in the sand back in the desert. There were a lot of laws. Deuteronomy gives a lot of them. You know, follow me, love me. You know, then he goes on to uh, the the particulars, which are even more interesting um so if the devil can pull us across this law line you know get us to transgress that's what that means crossing the line he can put his claim on us that's why even the littlest indulgences in sin is no small thing because you know you notice as as a believer the devil never stops tempting people he doesn't just retire he doesn't just go away after you've been good long enough and followed god long enough no way The devil keeps knocking on the door, checking for soft spots in the wall, little cracks, little crevices, little generational junk that's still hanging out there because this is a constant process of being perfected. So if you live to be 80 years old and have served God 80 years, you're still going to be perfected and tested, refined, polished. But so Satan is looking for a way to lay a claim on us. So when when you're a believer, once you're a believer, even if you're a baby believer, Everything you do, Satan takes it to the the extreme of the the law, the extreme um, highest end of the uh, judgment that can be made against us because he really. And so when you're when you when you're saved and you transgress and you just flirt a little bit or you just step out of the boundary a little bit or go to the forbidden place one time or you harbor one little evil, bitter thought, just one or two times or you just kind of mull it over and don't let go of it, it 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 becomes a huge operation a huge activity a huge open door for the devil so let's look at the law for a second i've said these things before but let's say it again the law is a divine intervention the law was given as a divine intervention a divine like 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 the flood was a divine intervention like the cross is a divine intervention like Pentecost was a divine intervention where God himself comes down and does a big thing to stop the devil's taken over completely. And so the law was a divine intervention to protect and identify the people of God. Because there was a lot of everything, everybody out there was in mythology and paganism. They, you know, they built the The tower of Babel was 150 years after the flood. Did they learn anything? Evidently not much. Noah was still alive when they built the Tower of Babel. Where was Noah? Well, he wasn't there. I can promise you that. Probably hanging by the boat with his little clan, holding on to the things of God while he saw all of this. One of his sons had taken off and run, got the bit in his teeth and ran towards darkness, and that was Ham. There was three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I think Japheth was involved too. Shem wasn't there. Because when all the, the nations and the languages got divi- divided, Japheth was right there. So you only had one boy who's serving God. And that Japheth and Ham's people were the Gentiles. And Shem's people and, ended up being the Hebrews and later the Jewish people, the called people of God, to preserve the DNA, to preserve the bloodlines of Jesus Christ. That's what, that was their job. You know. I mean, it wasn't an easy job. So God had to give them the law to protect them. It's like you put, you put a fence around your cattle because everybody's trying to steal them. You know the fence keeps the cattle in and the and the, and the thieves out maybe, but maybe not because maybe the cattle think its grass is greener on the other side of that fence so they break out or they disregard the fence and they wander over into enemy territory and of course then they get snatched up and nabbed by the devil. So, but the people who are in the fence keeping the law and the law was pretty strict. You got to do this and that and you had altars and vestments and priests and holy days and sacrifices and. It was pretty strict. It was pretty pretty obvious that you're keeping the law or you're not keeping the law. It's pretty detailed. So, you know, there was reasons for all this. And the reasons were always that they were a foreshadowing of Jesus. It was like telling the story ahead of time. It's like preparing people. It's like when you go to the movies. All those sci-fi movies you get so entertained by are just foretelling. of what's. But God was foretelling that there would be blood, the blood of a lamb, the lamb of God, and the various other things. And he would bring... Um, The Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world, like those lambs who temporarily work for one year, basically the Day of Atonement. Then they'd have to do it again. And they did lamb sacrifices every day, obviously, for other things, too. But the law, okay, is a divine intervention to protect and identify the people of God. Why? Why would you need to do that? Well, because the devil's always laying claim to them. Anything that leaves the fence is mine. the Anybody who worships a demon, an idol, gets them married, a heathen woman, uh, you know, takes up heathen gods whatever eats certain unholy food. He's mine, 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 mine. And so there was constantly people being seduced to come up from under the protection of the law because actually um, this law was God had established through it a legal means, legal means of identifying and defining the people. And, their innocence, defining what innocence would look like in the face of the accuser, the relentless accuser who kept charging and bringing charges and, 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 uh, against them before the court of heaven and putting down. The, the Lord had to have a law to put down Satan's excuses um, and in his right to claim them. Satan was constantly exercising his right to come before the court of heaven. You say, well, what do you, how do you know this? How do you know this? Did you ever read the book of Job? Where where did the sons of men uh, the sons of God I'm sorry show up before God and God says what you been up to oh just nothing just walking to and fro on the earth ah uh, right Satan what have you been up to have you seen my righteous servant Job while you're wandering around down there oh yeah 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 well <laughs> righteous you give him everything he wants okay let me test him so God. Let, permit, permitted Satan to test Job. Why? Because he thought Job really needed to be tested, or he wasn't sure Job was really serving him truly, or maybe his heart was half in and half out of it, and God just wanted to see for sure. No, God doesn't know everything, then he's not God. Okay. But what it was was Satan was sure, arrogant, that sure, positive that he could break this relationship, this love relationship between Job and, and God. And that's the same thing for you. Don't think you've not been talked about in heaven. Don't think your name hasn't been brought up in the court of heaven. Oh, so naive you would be. They're talking about us. But God, I have a right. I have a right to bring that heart attack upon that family because, look, that man, there's blood guilt in his bloodline, and nobody's nobody's confessed it, nobody's forsaken it, nobody's identified the iniquity or canceled it out. Why do you think people have heart attacks? It's eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. And if people in your bloodline are murdering people, shedding blood, royalty, Killing people, cutting their heads up, hanging them, oh, torturing them, inquisitions, ugh, all that stuff. Every single one of those things that's not been brought before the court and made right before God through the blood of Jesus Christ, Satan still has access to it. He does. And it's only the mercy and protection of God that he doesn't just absolutely strike us all dead because he can't. Satan can't strike us dead, but he can sure get us to agree with him and then he can take us to the edge of the cliff, you know. All right, so what does God say? God says their innocence has to be established at, the, at that point through the law. Therefore, a lot of favorite, favorite scriptures are the ones that have to do with an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Um, uh, the soul that sins, shall die. Because with judge not, you know, all have sinned. Because these are the scriptures he uses to build his own case. But God, they have sinned. I have a right to call for the death penalty. But, God, they have not confessed that sin. This is Old Testament, New Testament. And that's why God is so strict about not bringing the law into your salvation. The law has been rewritten as the law of love. Love supersedes, love trumps the law of of just don't kill them. The law of God, the law of love, the law of faith, the law of faith, believing in the promises of God. All of what God wants to do for you is based on God's goodness and his promise and you believing his word. It's all about faith, right? We all know this. So then why does the devil want to make back about being good, doing good, being perfect, performing, uh, keeping the law? Because if you do that, then you've come back under the old rules. And the old rules allow allow him to build a quite a fabulous case against you because you're halfway believing the lie yet that you still somehow have to be good. No, it is the goodness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you that you're, you're abiding in the vine. The vine is good. The vine is Jesus Christ. Out of our abiding comes the fruits of, of goodness, peace, hope. Joy. As that branch abides in that healthy tree, that branch will be healthy. You know, Satan tries to take his little hacksaw on, chop us off. I get that. But there's a gardener out there who doesn't let him do that. But the thing is, as we abide in the vine, we will be what the vine is. And he is goodness and love and faith. And so it's not as hard as you think. It's a matter of following. It's not a matter of doing. It's a matter of being. Again, it's about being, 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 and knowing who you are, and not doing, 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 and getting failing and frustrated, and and then uh, vulnerable to the devil's accusations. So now, what is the devil? So in Ezekiel, so the devil's got his claims. He's building his case. Um, Going back to Ezekiel again for a minute, he says, 18:30 eighteen thirty through thirty two if you they repent and turn if you repent and turn from your transgressions so that your iniquity will not be your ruin what is he connecting there iniquity with ruin okay um if you will confess that which you've committed for why should you die? so committing sins equals death he says and God says, look, guys, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies before. Me, I have no. I have no pleasure in seeing my children die. Do you, Father, Mother? I wouldn't think so. Not unless there's a demon inside of you, or many. But as made in the image of God, you're not going to have any pleasure in your children dying. Why should you die? For I have no pleasure. It says, God is not willing that any should perish. For God so loved the world. That's one of the most hated verses. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave, and gave and gave and gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, die, but have eternal life. Satan hates that verse. Satan hates all the verses that have anything to do with the peace, love, joy, mercy, goodness, forgiveness of God. He says, therefore, and Ezekiel says, therefore, turn and live. Turn means to repent. Change your mind. So Satan's... We go back now to so so Satan's looking for a way to present his case. So he has to go back and dig up, you know how the the, the attorneys sometimes they're they're it's a it's a new case and they go back into the law books and they try to figure out a loophole and a and a little you know wording here and there that they can use to create an escape clause for their client. Well, Satan goes back to the law books. He went back to the law books in he's in Exodus. He goes from Ezekiel to Exodus. Exodus twenty-one twenty-four. He found a, a gem. He found a gem. Twenty-one twenty-four says. Um, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit before that, just to give you the. Okay, it's a chapter on the rights of persons, and really, it's a it's a, it's a summation of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth clause. Um, what God was doing here in Exodus. Obviously, the law of love had not yet been established. The cross had not been given. We had not yet been given the uh, the power to over the over the enemy to forgive, to bind, to loose. All these things had not yet been given. So God had to take the, the the preliminary, primitive ways of administering some sort of safety and protection. And this is what it was: the primitive and external administration of justice. That is. In effect uh, to protect people from pain and death and what whatever an eye for an eye tooth for tooth, an eye a skin for skin blow for blow, blood for blood, so what he was saying in Exodus, God was saying, okay, if you know um, you uh, strike a man so that he dies, surely you must be put to death, um, but if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him uh, into his hand, then he will then I will appoint for you a place where you may go to, be, to flee. So in other words, if, if you're premeditating murder, if you're looking for a way to lie or deceive or steal from or strike, it says, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found, in his shall be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Why do you say that twice? Wow. If a man contend with each other and one strikes the other uh, with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him um, to be thoroughly, what he needs to be thoroughly healed. If a man beats his servant or his maidservant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished, notwithstanding if he remains alive a day or two, the servant that is, he shall not be punished for he is his property. So he's trying to define the rights of people and situations. And of course, God's not into people being property, but that was part of what was going on. And so we had to make some provisions. God's not into divorce as well, but he had to make some provisions for it because he knows that man's heart is only evil continually or being tempted to be evil continually. And so when he goes in verse 24, he says, 23 says, but if any lasting harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Other place he records, he says, and blow for blow. So we're trying to keep it, this primitive external administration of justice is to just keep things fair. But the problem is that it's ineffective And it creates pain. And the devil twists that law around to promote the idea of hitting, striking, retaliation, getting even, getting back at someone as the base for making things fair. And then, because it was written in God's word as the temporary schoolmaster, the the temporary means, he, he makes it that this is God's idea of justice, which Creates a very false concept of God. What kind of a God is that? He, he's a bully God. You know, if somebody beats you, then you can beat him. If he kills, then you can kill. If he pokes out your eye, you can poke out his eye. This, is, this was temporary. This was the primitive. This was the, uh, the primitive external administration of justice until such time as the laws could actually be written in their hearts through repentance, through Jesus Jesus Christ. So what happens in this law situation where there are laws and there's ways to transgress the laws and opportunities to break the laws and then opportunities to bring judgment, demonic judgments upon people who break the laws and make it all look like God, that law was doing God no favor. Jesus fulfilled the law, got rid of it, so to, so satisfied it, completed it. You say, well, what about today? Well, if it says Allah is for the lawless. The law of love rules those who are Allah-abiding. And they don't need 10,000 rules to tell them how to be kind and just and good and fair and holy and righteous. And love one another, which is our first and one and only debt where they have is to love one another. They already know that. God says, I put that in your heart and you don't. You know, just follow that. Whereas if people aren't wanting to follow that and they're trying to look for every loophole, they'll build fence higher and higher, build a wall thicker and thicker to try to keep people behaving themselves. And this is what we have. We have more and more laws, more and more government, more and more legislation, bureaucracy, restrictions, signs posted, whatever. I mean, it's just overwhelming because people are lawless. They, the more lawless you are, the more laws you have to have. And then the devil takes advantage of that to create even more binding constrictions on the righteous, on everybody. So actually, what happens for all, whether you're saved or not saved, whether you're free or not free, you can be saved and not free, by the way. You can be saved and believing a whole lot of lies. There is still a lot of condemnation for people who are born again if you walk in the parameters under the council and in the context of the experiences of your soul which is your flesh, my, your body and your soul together is called flesh. If you're using your new soul soft, a spirit software, which is guided by the Holy Spirit, you will walk in freedom and peace and you'll do the right thing and you'll be happy and your heart will be at peace. But if you're trying to, go to work both softwares, good and bad, in and out, error and, and not, you're still going to have errors. You're mixing mud with oatmeal. You're going to have a muddy oatmeal. You're not going to have much that's worth eating. Actually, so the tempter, here's the problem, doesn't stop tempting people after they're saved. People who are saved don't stop, they don't stop getting tricked, but they have a remedy. They can go to the, the father and say, I confess it, I got tricked. It's, you can say it's your fault. Well, you believed a lie, but was it your fault? Did you want to believe a lie? Did you want to make a bad stupid choice that day? No, probably not. So whose fault was it? It was the devil's. What's he trying to do? Get the blame placed upon you. You know, you know, he's kind of plea bargaining with you to try to get you to take the the rap so he can go free and you can sit there guilty before God and expect now God's going to have to figure this out. But really, God knows he needs to judge the enemy. And that's not you, although you may see yourself as the wrongdoing enemy. Actually, the tempter has used our free will, what he does and our foolish choices to put God in a very difficult position. To have to keep the peace. But kids do that with their parents all the time. Where they can't use their perfect will. now, they have to use their permissive will to go bail their child out of jail or whatever. Or, you know, pay for the hospital bill because they got in a stupid accident where they were drinking and driving or whatever it is. You know, or they're doing drugs or whatever. And and the child is confused and demonized and doesn't know what to do. The parent is confused and probably demonized and doesn't know what to do. So they both get pulled into a deeper snare of bitterness and retaliation and misunderstanding and arguments and cutting off relationships. And the devil says, oh, I love it. It's so exciting how I can leverage these little things. So, so the tempter uses our free will and foolish choices to put God in a difficult place. So it's hard for God to keep the peace with an external force. So that's what we do. We have law enforcement. We have um, external remedies. Uh, which are carried out, you know, justice, carried out by human hands, which again are human hands, which can be corrupted and bribed and influenced and reused by the devil to further destroy the hope of justice and vindication and restoration and mercy and truth for all of mankind. Think about it. How many, of, how many innocent people have been destroyed in, in human courts, courts of law? How many families have been ripped apart by social services who are trying to do a good thing? How many of us have been stripped of our freedoms and rights by a government who's saying it's trying to protect us? These human things have established, you know, the authority is there given by God, but when it's carried out by humans who are also vulnerable to being tempted to be flattered, misuse their powers and authorities, you have nothing but a repeating and a recycling of injustices and so law doesn't work to bring justice and it doesn't work to bring justification. Two very important things. And law does not work. And yet we have people who live and die by the, the, the legalities of religion and law and they're unhappy and they push people away from God. So Satan uses this law of reciprocity, we would call it an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blow for blow. Um, to He uses that As The biblical standard for justice. It's not. You know, it's not God's standard. It's in the Bible. Yes, it was written and it was formerly used. Yes. But God says that, you know, Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He's fulfilled the law. He is our righteousness. All this. He said, well, then I can be bad and do whatever I want. No, when God's law is written in your heart and you really create an image of God, you really don't want to be bad. It's not that much fun. It's not, it does not, it may be fun for a moment. You may be enticed and tricked for a moment into puffing on that cigarette and thinking, oh, it relaxes me. But you know, you know, don't kid yourself. You know, it's a, it's another nail in your coffin. You know that you don't have even have to be smart to know that. You know that it's a trick. You know that it's a lie and you know that you're hooked, but you don't admit you're hooked because then you admit that you got tricked and you're wrong and you're scared because now how do I get out of this because I don't know how to get out of it because I don't know how I got into it but so I'm just going to deny that I have a problem where does denial come from heaven or hell and what's that going to do for you in the long run hmm? lead you over the cliff because I don't have a problem because I'm still trying to be good which makes God really <laughs> that kind of a yeah, Image mean, we have of God with a baseball bat, he's just looking for everybody who can't be good and beats him up. Oh. Would well, you want to go to a heaven that's run by a god like that? Really? Uh, you need to understand who God really is, or you won't really want to go to heaven. And if you're serving God because you're afraid of him, that's like being married to somebody you're terrified of. How's that going to work for you as a nice, happy marriage? You don't marry someone because you're terri- terrified, unless, of course, they have coerced you into marrying them, and then it is, then it is abusive, it is violence. It is torment. It is slavery. It is all the most horrible things it can be. But if you marry someone out of love and covenant and you're willing to lay down your life for them and they're willing to lay down their life for you and they're not willing to say, well, you go first, then I'll see if I can have to lay down my life. No, a covenant is we lay down our lives at the same time together and we love each other and everything I got's yours and everything you've got's mine and we're good. We're one. That's covenant. That's marriage. We don't have many marriages today. We have a lot of prenuptial agreements and contracts. We have a let's see how this goes kind of thing. And if I don't like it, I'll leave it. We got all that going on in our vows. Well, Satan just laughs at those vows because now you've just given him some rope to hang you with. Because he said, you promised. And now you're not keeping your promise. Therefore, I have a right to choke you. All right. So eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, biblical standards of justice. Satan makes those out to be that. But. Um, if we can be tempt provoked to take action against, you know, our, uh, against injustice, against ourselves, against our fellow human being, um, he can bring all of this stuff he provokes us into doing before the high court of heaven and use that as evidence against us. You know? And he can also then require a similar, similar action to be taken by you. If you take matters into your own hands, to vigilante type of thing, get justice, then he can also petition the high court to do the very same thing to you. judge not lest you be judged, but with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. So he, he tries to keep it real fair that way. There's a difference between making things fair and making things right. He's trying to make things fair. There's a difference between fair and right. So fair means that you did it. They got, it, it happened to you. Now you should get to do it somebody else or you did it somebody else. Now it should happen to you. Um, but notice, um, You say, well, I don't know. Is this really what the devil does? Well, let's see what the devil does. We we went to Job. Now let's go to Matthew and see what he did to Jesus. Jesus, right out here in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. How much audacity does the devil have to think that he can tempt Jesus? Well, let's read it here a little bit, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, capital S, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Oh, Jesus didn't necessarily do anything wrong. He was just walking in the spirit and he fell into the temptation or he was set up to be tempted. Satan said, I have a right to test him. Father God, let's see what your little boy will do. Let me have Adam. Okay, God says very well. So after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, I'm sure he was hungry, which it says he was, and tired and weak and you know, ready to give up and poor me and I go need to to go find something to eat. He's being distracted by the, the tempter. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be turned to bread, to become bread. Okay, so he's challenging his identity. Do you really know who you are, Jesus? Are you the son of God? Okay, let's prove it to yourself that you're the son of God and to me and to everybody else and turn these stones into bread. Now, Jesus was so secure in who he was, he didn't have to prove it to himself by sinning. By sinning, by listening to what the devil says, turn the stones into bread. Jesus, even when he multiplied the bread, did not turn stones into bread. There was plenty of stones around there that day, I'm sure. He used five loaves and two fishes. Bread is bread. So he made bread out of bread. Okay. He kept the rules. And he did it when his father said. And he said, Jesus answered, it is written, I shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay. So that's how we feed ourselves. How are you eating good food these days? second temptation, they are in different orders in Luke and Matthew, but we got Matthew. They're the same temptations, just reversed order in some, the second two. Then the devil took him up into a holy city and set him on a pinnacle of a temple. And he said to him, you are the son of God. Still identity here. Throw yourself down. Now listen, the devil is going to quote, quote your favorite psalm, 91, 11 and 12. Your favorite psalm when you enter the airplane and take off. God will give his angels charge over you. Okay. The devil not only knows the scriptures, he has the audacity to quote them to you and to the son of God. And he says, okay, it's written. This is what God says. He's going to give his angels charge over you. Hold him to it. See if he'll do it. Jump down off the temple. Eat, drink that diet Pepsi all the rest of your life and see if God will keep you from getting cancer and your teeth from falling out. Let's tempt God a little bit here. Let's just see if if he really loves me. See if he'll rescue me. See if he's really God. If you're really God, come down off the cross. Again, temptations. Written, it is written, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you. Psalm 91, 11, and 12. And in their hands they shall bear you up. Going on, quoting further, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus, God the Father is, going to take care of you just go ahead and test it see if he really loves you see if he's really backing you see if he's really behind you jesus do you really know who your father is you know he may have just set you up and he's going to abandon you jesus said to him i love it four words it is written again don't just quote half the scripture put it in context and say the whole thing you shall not tempt the lord your god Bottom line, Satan's motive here was to tempt the Lord, the Father God in heaven, to put him in a hard place. What is he going to do if Jesus sins? Well, Jesus knew that if he did that, he sinned. He would put his father in an impossible place and that the whole deal would go down. Never happened. There'd be no salvation. If Jesus would have sinned one time, so innocent, turning a stone into bread could have lost your salvation forever. If Jesus didn't know who he was, You'd have never got saved. There'd have never been a cross. He'd have never had the gumption, the courage, the the fortitude to go through with it. He knew who he was. He knew who God was. He knew who the devil was, and he knew was at stake and he knew what was going on all the time. And that's why he's Jesus Christ. That's why he's coming back on the white horse. That's why he's gonna do this thing right and finish it off with the breath of his mouth and throw the devil in the bottomless pit. So The the devil had the audacity to quote the scripture. Jesus' reply was the word. Yeah, God also said this, devil, it is written. So the completion of truth is truth rightly divided and put in the context of truth. What are we going to do with all this? We're going to have to understand in a deeper level the mysteries of iniquity and the mysteries of, of lawlessness and the mysteries of God. And in these last days, these mysteries are being exposed. So it's time for me to go right now. I think you've got enough to chew on for the day. Now here's the deal. Next week, we'll talk about some more of these scriptures. If you got some you'd like to hand in, pay attention. One thing you can really do that would really be nice, if you're scared to talk to anybody else about Jesus or not scared, and you figure it's time I do something, tell them about this little secret of Rescue Radio. Go to the website, LifeRecovery.com, check on the little red button, can't miss it, and start listening to the archives. And this is for discipleship, this is for training, this is for us, this is for, this is food, to eat, to know, to grow, to go out there, to not be afraid, not be ashamed. By the way, some of you are not going to be ashamed of the gospel anymore. You are getting so ticked, you are getting so, it's so black and white now. You know, you think everything out there is totally a mud puddle and gray, well the things of God are getting more and more clear. You begin to speak out, tell the truth, stand for the truth. Don't be stupid. Let's stand for the truth. Pray, go to the court of heaven. You know, we think we have to go to some human court or pick it in some street somewhere, and all that's good if God leads you to do that. But the first place you go is to the court of heaven. You settle it there and then watch what God will do to bring it to pass on earth. Otherwise, you go out there and, and get beat up and destroyed for nothing. You go to the court of heaven first. Say, God, here's my petition. Here's what's going on. This is the truth. This is the lie. This is the sin. I confess it. Okay? Father God, raise up your soldiers. Give us the wisdom that Jesus had to know who we are, to know what is going on, to know who you are, and to not be tricked by the devil. Lord, I pray for your divine protection over everyone who takes up the truth and carries it. You said you've you've given us The armor, the sword, the offensive weapon, the sword of your word. But, Lord, I know it's a two-edged sword. And sometimes you can't use scripture to fight scripture because they can come back. The devil's got more scriptures than we do. He's got them all memorized, Lord God. So give us wisdom to fight, having done all to stand, knowing that the battle is not ours. The problem is yours. You are with us. And having done all, we can stand simply because we know that you are good and you've got it. So be blessed today. Tell people about Life Recovery, Rescue Radio, and we'll talk to you next week. Amen. Amen. for your soul.